cults, coercion, and sexuality in society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of Frankie Files Podcast. I'm Frankie Teets. Today, I want to talk about a really important aspect of my cult experience, music. Many people can relate to music being used in their cult or high-demand group. Some have studied it in its own influence on us. Today, I want to do something of a combination there and use several sources, but mainly this one incredible book I got at a library sale one day when I was bike riding in Long Beach, where I'm from. The book title, This is Your Brain on Music, The Science of Human Obsession. The title is clever, inferring that 80s anti-drug commercial, This is Your Brain on Drugs, remember that? If you do, you're probably old like me. (laughs) Well, this book is something I've gone to a lot being a musician from around age five. I love listening to, dancing to, and playing music. It's been a big part of my life all along. My mom even bought a cheap piano, a full piano that she had in our house when we were little. Even before I was studying for this podcast in 2022, when I began, I was myself in an obsession over this book by writer Daniel J. Levitin, author also of The World in Six Songs. It's a trade-back size book put out by Penguin Books Limited in the year 2006, so you should definitely check it out. This will be my first coverage of the topic and not the last, for sure, because the topic is huge. I played music in a cult, True Confessions. I was with my twin, and we were a duet which sang and played original music for ceremonies and services. Looking back at how it was used to program me and others who heard it is a bit unnerving. First, let me play a sample of this music. I feel that this music is very hypnotic. So before we get to the brainy part of this episode, here's an excerpt of my twin and I in the 80s singing and playing the music we, quote, wrote while completely under the leader's influence. See what you think. So the whole concept was Atlantis risen in the Morningland cult I was in, reincarnations of royalty from Egyptian lines, etc. It's a lot, but you can see that the cult took indoctrination and attraction of new members through music very seriously. In fact, the music department was pretty big. It was always a major part of events. Bands included Shiva, the Feathered Serpent, the Strolling Minstrels, and our duet, the Daughters of Isis, from what I can remember. Tons of music events took place as well as albums created in studio. The leader knew 
how important it was. So why is music so important? Million dollar question today. To paraphrase This Is Your Brain on Music, this is evolutionary level stuff in the brain. Music has been used by animals for mating, selection, and rituals since the beginning of time. Those parts of the brain have stayed and remained in use in the brain despite the fact that they are, in essence, according to scientists, no longer needed. As far as biological cause and effect are concerned, Pinker wrote in Language Instinct, Music is useless. It shows no signs of design for attaining a goal such as long life, grandchildren, or accurate perception and prediction of the world. Compared with language, vision, social reasoning, and physical know-how, music could vanish from our species and the rest of our lifestyle would be virtually unchanged. Ooh, I might beg to differ. That is the belief of some cognitive scientists. Yet I can wholeheartedly profess I use music to stabilize my emotions or to express myself through dance or with friends on a daily basis. Dan Sperber called music an evolutionary parasite. Amazing. Yet religious cults and movements of all types use music to indoctrinate, motivate, and bring together humans in all types of ways. So how do you explain that? Dan Sperber said music exists simply because of the pleasure that it affords. Its basis is purely hedonic. Darwin, though, thought music would play a role in sexual selection, and in The Descent of Man, he says, I conclude that musical notes and rhythm were first acquired by the male and female progenitors of mankind for the sake of charming the opposite sex. Thus, musical tones became firmly associated with some of the strongest passions an animal is capable of feeling and are consequently used instinctively, unquote. Darwin believed that music preceded speech as a means of courtship, leading to the fact that it is to make our genes attractive, to make sure we survive as a species by breeding. For me, this idea was a bomb, as music has played such a huge part in my life. And this is just to set the stage for what I really want to get into here, how the brain processes music and how greatly it influences us, whether we want it to or not. The ears have got to process what's coming in. Here's another excerpt from This Is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin. But even after you know the principles that are involved, it's impossible to turn them off. Your brain keeps on processing the information in the same way, and you continue to be surprised by the outcome. Hemholtz called this process unconscious inference. Rock called it the logic of perception. George Miller, Ulrich Neisser, Herbert Simon, and Roger Shepard have described perception as a constructive process. These are all ways of saying that what we see and hear is part of a long mental chain of events that gives rise to an impression, a mental image of the physical world. Many of the ways in which our brains function, including our sense of color, taste, smell, and hearing, arose through evolutionary pressures, some of which no longer exist. The cognitive psychologist Steven Pinker and others have suggested that our music perception system was essentially an evolutionary accident 
and that survival and sexual selection pressures created a language and communication system that we learned to exploit for musical purposes. This is a contentious point in the cognitive psychology community. The archaeological record has left us some clues, but it rarely leaves us a smoking gun that settle such issues definitively. Filling in phenomenon I've described is not just a laboratory curiosity. Composers exploit this principle as well, knowing that our perception of a melodic line will continue even if part of it is obscured by other instruments. Whenever we hear the lowest notes of the piano or double bass, we're not actually hearing 27.5 or 35 hertz because those instruments are typically incapable of producing much energy at these ultra-low frequencies. Our ears are filling in the information and giving us the illusion that the tone is that low. We experience illusions in other ways in music, in piano works such as Sinling's The Rustle of Spring or Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu in C sharp minor opus 66, the notes go by so quickly that an illusory melody emerges. Play the tune slowly and it disappears. Due to stream segregation, the melody pops out. When the notes are close enough together in time, the perceptual system holds the notes together. But the melody is lost when its notes are too far apart in time. As studied by Bernard Lortat Jacob at the Musée in Paris, the Quintina, literally fifth one, is an a cappella vocal music also conveys an illusion. A fifth female voice emerges from the four male voices when the harmony and timbers are performed just right. They believe the voice is that of the Virgin Mary, coming to reward them if they are pious enough to sing it right. These frontal lobe calculations are called top-down processing, and they can exert influence on the lower-level modules while they are performing their bottom-up computations. The top-down expectations can cause us to misperceive things by resetting some of the circuitry in the bottom-up processors. This is partly the neural basis for perceptual completion and other illusions. Top-down and bottom-up processes inform each other in an ongoing fashion. At the same time as features are being analyzed individually, parts of the brain that are higher up, that is, that are more phylogenetically advanced and that receive connections from lower brain regions, are working to integrate these features into a perceptual whole. The brain constructs a representation of reality based on these component features much as a child constructs a fort out of Lego blocks. In this process, the brain makes a number of inferences due to incomplete or ambiguous information. Sometimes these inferences turn out to be wrong, and that's what visual and auditory illusions are, demonstrations that our perceptual system has guessed incorrectly about what is out there in the world. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. So now we see our brains can scientifically be influenced by well-meaning and ill-intended forces. And we know how. So let's continue on this journey to what the heck is music and how many notes are there? This will kind of blow your mind here. (laughs) 
morning. Let me read another excerpt. The number of combinations becomes so large that it's unlikely that we will ever understand all the possible connections in the brain or what they mean. The number of combinations possible, and hence the number of possible different thoughts or brain states each of us can have exceeds the number of known particles in the entire known universe. Similarly, you can see how it is that all songs we have ever heard and all those that will ever be created could be made up of just 12 musical notes, ignoring octaves. Each note can go to another note or to itself or to a rest, and this yields 12 possibilities. But each of those possibilities yields 12 more. When you factor in rhythm, each note can take on one of many different note lengths. The number of possibilities grows very, very rapidly. Much of the brain's computational power comes from this enormous possibility for interconnection. And much of it comes from the fact that brains are parallel processing machines rather than serial processors. A serial processor is like an assembly line handling each piece of information as it comes down the mental conveyor belt, performing some operation on that piece of information, and then sending it down the line for the next operation. Computers work like this. Ask a computer to download a song from a website, tell you the weather in Boise, and save a file and you've been working on, and it will do them one at a time. It does things so fast that it can seem as though it is doing them all at the same time in parallel, but it isn't. Brains, on the other hand, can work on many things at once, overlapping and in parallel. Our auditory system processes sound in this way. It doesn't have to wait to find out what the pitch of a sound is to know where it's coming from. The neural circuits devoted to these two operations are trying to come up with the answers at the same time. If one neural circuit finishes its work before another, it just sends its information to other connected brain regions and they can begin using it. If late arriving information that affects an interpretation of what we're hearing comes in from a separate processing circuit, the brain can change its mind and update what it thinks is out there. Our brains are updating their opinions all the time, particularly when it comes to perceiving visual and auditory stimuli, hundreds of times per second, and we don't even know it. You might have hundreds or thousands of these one-dimensional friends, each capable of evoking a particular memory, experience, or mood. These are your connections. Accessing them causes you to change your mood or state. If you were to talk to Hannah and Sam at the same time, or one right after the other, Hannah would make you feel happy. Sam would make you feel sad. And in the end, you'd be back to where you were, neutral. But we can add an additional nuance, which is the weight or force of influence of these connections, how close you feel to an individual at a particular point in time. That weight determines the amount of influence the person will have on you. If you feel twice as close to Hannah as you do to Sam, talking to Hannah and Sam 
for an equal amount of time would still leave you feeling happy, although not as happy as if you had talked to Hannah alone. Sam's sadness brings you down, but only half away from the happiness you gained from talking to Hannah. I love how they say there our brains are changing our opinions all the time and we don't even know it. Yeah, but the powers that be do know it. We're so influenced now. Minute to minute, it's powerful. Okay, so now as promised, let's explore the details of what parts of the brain are engaged in listening and playing music. It's a lot. When I hear Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3, the hair cells in my cochlea parse, the incoming sound into different frequency bands, sending electrical signals to my primary auditory cortex, area A1, telling it what frequencies are present in the signal, additional regions in the temporal lobe, including the superior temporal subcus, S-U-L-C-U-S, and the superior temporal gyrus on both sides of the brain help to distinguish the different timbers I'm hearing. If I want to label those timbers, the hippocampus helps to retrieve the memory of similar sounds I've heard before. And then I'll need to access the mental dictionary, which will require using structures found at the junction between the temporal, occipital, and parietal lobes. So far, these regions are the same ones, although activated in different ways and with different populations of neurons that I would use to process the car horn. Whole new populations of neurons will become active, however, as I attend to pitch sequences rhythms and emotions, frontal lobes, cerebellum, the amygdala, and the nucleus, accumbens, part of network of structures involved in feeling of pleasure and reward, whether it's through eating, having sex, or listening to pleasurable music. To some extent, if the room is vibrating with the deep sounds of the double bass, some of those same neurons that fired when I stubbed my toe may fire now. Neurons sensitive to tactile input. If the car horn hosts a pitch of A440, neurons that are set to fire when the frequency is encountered will most probably fire, and they'll fire again when an A440 occurs in Rachmaninoff. Abrupt, short, loud sounds tend to be interrupted by many animals as an alert sound. We see this when comparing the alert calls of birds, rodents, and apes. Slow onset long and quieter sounds tend to be interpreted as calming or at least neutral. Think of the sharp sound of the dog's bark versus the soft purring of the cat who sits peacefully on your lap. Composers know this, of course, and use hundreds of subtle shadings of timber and note wing to convey the many different emotional shadings of human experience. According to the great perception psychologists Hermann von Helmholtz, Richard Gregory Irving Rock, and Roger Shepard, perception is a process of inference and involves an analysis of probabilities. The brain's task is to determine what the most likely arrangement of objects in the physical world is. Given the particular pattern of information that reaches the sensory receptors, the retina for vision, the eardrum for hearing, most of the time the information we receive at our sensory receptors is incomplete or ambiguous. Voices are mixed in with other voices, the sound of machines, wind, footsteps. 
wherever you are right now, whether you're in an airplane, a coffee shop, a library, at home, in a park, or anywhere else, stop and listen to the sounds around you. Unless you're in a sensory isolation tank, you can probably identify at least a half a dozen different sounds. Your brain's ability to make those identifications is nothing short of remarkable. When you consider what it starts out with, that is, what the sensory receptors pass up, grouping principles by timber, spatial location, loudness, and so on help to segregate them. But there's still a lot we don't know about the process. No one has yet designed a computer that can perform this task of sound source separation. The eardrum is simply a membrane that is stretched across the tissue and bone. It's the gateway of hearing. Virtually all of our impressions of the auditory world come from the way in which it wiggles back and forth in response to air molecules hitting it. To a degree, the pinnae, the fleshy parts of your ear, are also involved in auditory perception, as they are bones in your skull. But for the most part, the eardrum is the primary source of what we know about what is out there in the auditory world. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. Let's consider a typical auditory scene. Sound is transmitted through air by molecules vibrating at certain frequencies. These molecules bombard the eardrum, causing it to wiggle in and out depending on how hard they are hit, related to the volume and amplitude of sound, and on how fast they're vibrating, related to what we call pitch. But there's nothing in the molecules that tells the eardrum where they came from or which ones are associated with which object. The molecules that were set in motion by the cat purring don't carry an identifying tag that says cat, and they may arrive on the eardrum at the same time and the same region of the eardrum as the sound from the refrigerator, the heater, and everything else. Imagine that you stretch a pillowcase tightly across the opening of a bucket, and different people throw ping pong balls at it from different distances. Each person can throw as many ping pong balls as he likes, and as often as he likes. Your job is to figure it out. Just by looking at how the pillowcase moves up and down, how many people there are, who they are, and whether they're walking toward you, away from you, or standing still. This is analogous to what the auditory system has to contend with in making identifications of auditory objects in the world, using only the movement of the eardrum as a guide. How does the brain figure out from this disorganized mixture of molecules heating, beating against a membrane, what's out there in the world? In particular, how does it do this with music? It does this through a process of feature extraction, followed by another process of feature integration. The brain extracts basic low-level features from the music using specialized networks that decompose the signal into information about pitch, timbre, spatial location, loudness, reverberation, environment, tone durations, and the onset times for different notes, and for different components of notes, and for different components of tones. Operations are carried out in parallel by neural circuits that compute these values, and they can operate somewhat independently of another. That is, the pitch circuit doesn't need to wait for the duration circuit to be done in order to perform its calculations. 
This sort of processing where only the information contained in the stimulus is considered by the neural circuits is called bottom-up processing. In the world and in the brain, these attributes of the music are separable. We can change one without changing the other, just as we can change shape in visual objects without changing their color. So as we can see, the brain is incredibly nuanced at parsing out what the music means with or without our conscious part knowing it. A survival instinct from way back. In my opinion, cults, cult leaders, advertisers, the government all know about this. Sound and music are used to hypnotize us, to disarm us, to indoctrinate us, and to program us. I can literally remember what I felt like sitting at Sunday service at Morningland Temple, playing music with my twin. I felt like I was in the rapture or bliss or detached with harmonies that people called angelic coming from my mouth. Yet I look back and it's quite sinister to hear people say things like one feedback did that they had a dream of my sister and I singing and it brought them back to the temple when they were going to leave. I helped indoctrinate people and I didn't even know I was doing it. Yeah, but I was a teenager. So convenient to use. And I know I'm not alone, you guys who sang in your choir. You're well aware of what I'm talking about. But it's a lot to think about. I also want to wrap this particular episode by recommending an article linked in the show notes on this topic. ColtStories.com has an article about Community College Radio, a show which focuses on cult music. To go directly to it, type in cultstories.com forward slash cults forward slash music dash of dash mine dash control. Siren Warner is the journalist who has interviewed WFMU DJ and he's featured on this show a lot as a journalist who covers cults. Music of Mind Control is a weekly terrestrial radio show, they say on the article on New Jersey's WFMU that primarily focuses on records created by religious cults and like-minded groups. WFMU says pretty much all cults have music, which may or may not be recorded. If you want to maintain a congregation or a following, you need to have that factor. It's something that unifies everyone on an emotional level, and it's used as a control mechanism. The interview is really intriguing, and I recommend it. They do get it right. As someone who played music in a religious cult, I will continue exploring this on our third Tuesday segments randomly, so look for more researched essays on that. And who knows, maybe even an interview will come. Thanks for listening to, recommending, liking, and reviewing and donating to Frankie Files Podcast. And always keep critical thinking. You're listening to The Frankie Files. FrankieFilesPodcast.com If you're feeling down and no one's there to actually talk to, there is someone to talk to. Call the Suicide Prevention Hotline anytime. This will pass. Please know that many of us have survived these thoughts. 
Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 anytime, day or night. There's a friendly person there that can remind you to value the life you have and that this too shall pass. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255, or search online, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline.